And I wanted that same type of effect for my work. I want it to be powerful, not just in a sense of like you look at it as powerful, but that if it's in your space, it has a power to it. And mm. you feel that and it's that good energy. Black creativity is unstoppable. The Studio Noise podcast takes you into the studio with Black artists and creatives making the art that moves the culture. You get to feel all the inspiration, technique, and passion behind the people making paintings, making sculptures, making prints, making noise. It's the Studio Noise podcast with your host, Jamal Barber. It's the noise. Yes, it's your boy, Jay Barber. I've been on vacation with the family, but now I'm back with more of that noise. You know, I never leave you, <laughs> never let you down, yo. Always coming back. It's a great episode to come back to, too, because we got our guest, Mr. Jamil Wright Sr. is talking about traveling, being in transit, just like I was on vacation. <laughs> and what it meant for him and his family and how it translate that into his wonderful abstract work. His work is layered, it's textured, it's colorful. And we live from his Atlanta studio. You can hear the fan. <laughs> you get the fan in the background. And if you listen real close, I feel like you can feel the art, too. I feel like you can feel it being made while we're sitting there. You know, great energy for this one. And it's good back to be doing these studio visits. You know, the Delta variant trying to <laughs> keep a brother down. Don't want me to live my best life. You know what I mean? But I'm going to mask up and go out there and keep doing my thing. You know, keep having these great interviews, keeping y'all inspired out there. Everybody that's listening. I want you to make sure to go over to the studio noise podcast.com website. Uh, transcripts for this episode will be coming soon. Like I said, I just came off vacation, so I'll be catching up with all the good stuff. Uh, you can join our Studio Noise Patreon, and you'll get some new exclusive episodes. It'll be a lot of my thoughts about being on vacation, about recharging, about perspective on artistic processes. So a lot of that good stuff coming soon. If you support the show, get access to all those good episodes and a lot more. A lot of good stuff coming, yo. There'll be more exciting news from me about me and my studio practice and about the podcast show. You never know. It might be new studio space. Might be a live event or two. Mm. <laughs> I know you're excited. Exciting times right here in the podcast show. So I can't wait to share it with y'all so we can keep this thing going. Won't you do me a huge favor, yo? Just go back to your recent calls and the first two art lovers that you see, that you know, right there at the top. Won't you give them a call back? Tell them. You forgot to tell them that you found the best black art podcast around and they're back, yo, with new episodes. You got to rate and review. Show us some love <laughs> out there, yo. Get rate and review. Tell your friends, yo. Spread the word about this noise, yo. And right after the break, we got my man, Mr. Jamel Wright Sr. right here. It's the noise, baby. Yes. This is uh, Aaron F. Henderson. I'm a narrative artist working in the metro Atlanta area, and you're listening to Studio Noise. That's great. So, Looking forward to talking about it. Yeah, for sure, man. Talk about it. You know, it's been a long time since I did interviews in person, man. So Look at that, man. <laughs> So finally, finally glad to finally be out here, man. Going to people's studios again. Yeah, this is a, this is fun. I've been wanting to do this for a while. Yeah, what's up, man? Yeah, so it's your boy Jay Barber. I'm back. I'm back out in the field. Back at it. <laughs> hey, I'm hanging with my man Jamel Wright, senior uh, artist extraordinaire. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm good, man. Glad to be out, man. Glad to be out in your studio, man. You got a lot of stuff on the walls, man. It's always good to feel that energy. You know what I'm saying? Artists, we need to share that that energy, man. Yeah, I don't have one of those uh, nice, clean studios that's all pristine. <laughs> yeah. I have what I call uh, a working studio, which means that the um, the walls are always filled with something. The floor is always a mess, and um, I have to generally clean up for company <laughs> yeah well you cleaned up enough man you got some stuff out of the way but like i said man i, I love seeing the energy and seeing the stuff especially like when you look at your work the final process of it like the abstractions with all the layers and the 
and the different materials and all the other stuff that you put in it, like it's great to see it like as you building it. You know what I'm oh, saying? Yeah, It'll be yeah, a different yeah. understanding of, of what you're trying to do. So and those don't know, Jamel Wright, senior, abstract artist, he got his BA in art history from Georgia State. What's up? What's up, alum? <laughs> we got the MFA from School of Visual Arts in Manhattan. Uh, and he does abstraction, man. And uh, he's been doing some phenomenal work, man. I went to your last two shows, In Transit. Okay. and um, No, both of them called In Transit, matter of fact. Yeah, yeah one was called In Transit, The Return Home. Right. Um, I think that was when I first moved back to Atlanta. Right. And then the second one was a, a, a second iteration of that. But um, I think that was a more a smaller concise work mm -hmm. i think the one that was at the aviation was probably like it was a total of 23 pieces yeah yeah it was it was a good range of work yeah and then i think it gave a good overview of, of where you are as an artist you know what well saying? i think it to gave you a great overview of where i was like where i oh, am where now I was yeah that's, is, a, that's a great that's a great point yeah because like three years since i've completed like close to 100 pieces um and I'm rolling, man. I'm rolling. I'm, I'm rolling. So, like to see that work then, and to see what I'm doing now, I feel like I've grown completely. Yeah. Oh my! Yeah. I feel like I'm almost another person. Yeah. I I have I have that same feeling about uh, my work. Like right. seeing it coming out of grad school. Same feeling. Like I don't know. I love it when you know you just put your head down and work. And don't worry about like each individual piece as like a goalpost that you're, right. that you're moving. Just like let it go along the journey and the process, and then you look up and all of a sudden you own some whole another another thinking. Right. Like I mean, and the only reason why I knew I did a over a hundred pieces was because I was um, I was trying to tally up for something, and I started paying attention to what I had done. I didn't realize I had done that many pieces. And I was like, wow, like I've done, I started adding up stuff and like, <laughs> wow, like I've really been banging. Like I didn't realize how much work I didn't put in. Um, Is that different for you? Like, was that a different mode, like a different level? You know, the thing is like when I was in, when I was in undergrad in our, in our history program, I was working, but I wasn't working the same pace. And then when I got to grad school, uh, I mean, and you know, as a as an older student, uh, I think that a lot of the, the the young ones that come in there, they're coming right out of out of undergrad, or maybe coming two three years out of undergrad, don't have kids, aren't married, don't have um, extra lives. Yeah. I don't think they really understand the kind of time that that is mm -hmm. that you have there. So, me being completely away from all my kids. And all of our responsibilities for two years and being in the studio, I spent the night in the studios, like sometimes three, four nights a week. Um, so that kind of built up my pace to some degree. My biggest fear was coming back to Atlanta and um, coming back to Atlanta and wondering, like, how was I going to be able to fit that lifestyle into real life? Yeah, yeah. Now, I think that was uh, my balance. But I think because I was a full-time artist before, I was kind of already in the mode of, all right, if the kids are going to be away at school till this time, right. that's my time to work. So it's super concentrated. And I and I understand, like, the the span of time that I have to work. You know what I'm saying? I just yeah, take yeah, advantage yeah. of it while I'm there. Yeah, and, and I had that, too, because when my kids would go to bed at 9, 9 o'clock at night, or 10 o'clock, mm -hmm. then I was generally um, in the studio until like 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. But to be away from them, meaning that I can spend literally all day, all day in yeah. the studio. Yeah. And spend all day in the studio for three or four days, I would have studio clothes. Like I had a wardrobe. I had a uh, towel and washcloth in the studio. <laughs> I had extra, extra, extra drawers in the studio. <laughs> so that way, if I had spent two or three days there, I had toothbrush and right, a yes. deodorant. Yeah. So if I had to, if I spent two or three days there, 
I wouldn't smell or, or look like I'd <laughs> spent two or three days there. Yeah, it wasn't even stopping by for studio business. <laughs> right. It's like, whoa. <laughs> whoa, it's funky in here. And I'm not talking about the music. <laughs> and not talking about the art. Mm. Uh, but that's what's up, man. So, so tell me this. When you went in, what do you see now as the difference between your work before that time and after that time? Like, what does it give you? Oh, my God. Like, I was working with wood before. So I was working in wood and finding wood off the side of the road. I was working in um, assemblage work and, you know, found material work. So to kind of move that into fabric uh, was a complete move. Like, when I moved to New York, I knew that I couldn't work in wood and try to carry a four foot by four foot piece right. on a train. Right. And those pieces were sometimes 50, 60 pounds. So I had to find out a new way of working and I began just doing paintings and doing abstract paintings. And, and as I began to work in abstraction in that way, away from the found material work, um, I discovered some new things, some different things. Um, and having that kind of access to a different style of learning where, you know, a lot of us here are learning from books and learning from a few museum shows, but to constantly be able to go to a gallery or a museum when you're bored. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I was sometimes, I was four blocks away from Chelsea. So, and Chelsea is uh, about four blocks. So, you would go from like 19th Street all the way up to 24th Street and you would see pretty much everything that is everything in the world, all the mm. blue chip galleries. So you, your idea of art begins to change and you begin to grow. Mm-hmm. So I think my understanding, thank you to Georgia State and Kimberly Cleveland for um, really teaching me how to look at work. Um, I think they gave me a jump start on knowing how to edit. Mm. So being there, going to the studio, transitioning my work into paintings, and then eventually finding my way into textile, um, my work transitioned in a way that I, that I wouldn't have imagined. Right. I'm sure that anyone that's truly dedicated to their practice and then going through graduate school, you go in one way and you come out another. Yeah. You know, it's almost like, Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, got the golden ticket in it. You know, you get your golden ticket. Yeah. But then you go in there one way and you come out with a, a whole other experience. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting what you point out is that how much the environment also influenced the artwork. Definitely. Like just having the limitation of having to travel on the subway automatically made you rethink everything. You know, I wrote a doing. paper about it while I was up there and I was. I was trying to explain, and they and what's funny is they really didn't understand it. But I would tell them that time is different there than it is here, and they were like, "How?" I said, "Well, the time it takes from me getting on the train, and and don't get me wrong, I love the train system. I love the subway there. I mean, you can be anywhere within forty five minutes, mm-hmm. and although we could drive there, but." You know, to have someone else drive you there, yeah, and then still be within two to three blocks of where it is you want it to be. Um, and the city's so beautiful that you want to walk, right? But in that, you think about by the time I'm done with class. So, say I'm done with class at four. By the time I get home, it's about five thirty. By the time I go to a grocery store, it's about six thirty. By the time I cook, it's around 7.30. Mm. You cook, you eat, you're done, you go to bed. But for most people getting off work at 5.30, 6 o'clock, and maybe they, maybe they work in Manhattan and they live in Brooklyn, that's an hour travel. Then they have to get groceries. Mm-hmm. So they're getting home at that's 7 o'clock. They're not going to bed. and I mean, they're eating at 8.30. By the time they get, you know, by the time they are done, you know, it's 12 o'clock and they're having to start that cycle all over again. Right. I said here in Atlanta, it's really different. 
because we don't have that. We have our cars. We drive directly to where we want to go. Right. Um, if we have to move art, we can move art ourselves, or we got a friend who has a truck. So you don't have all the additional complications, and we have wonderful weather. Mm. So we have time to sit on a porch or drink some sweet tea or all that, all those other things that come with being in the South. Um, so time kind of expands. Being able to make really big work mm. is no real big deal here because there's people who have houses that right. can contain that. Yeah. There, or you have a garage or you have like even extra rooms. You know what I'm saying? Like space is a premium in New York. Right. right. Space is premium. Yeah. I went to one apartment while I was up there and they only had work that was probably no bigger than 24 by 24. Mm. Because their little apartment, right. they couldn't handle it. It was like the size of a hotel room. Right. And these are upscale apartments in like Manhattan, down by the MoMA, you know, and you're thinking like they're paying all this money and they can have a four bedroom house here. Yeah. Easy. Easy. Yeah. Buy it outright. Yeah. That's wow. <laughs> That's interesting, man. So I, I so I can see how not just the the rigor of going through the practice, but the environment also changed how right. you're looking at stuff. So you you probably also saw a lot more abstraction there than here, right? Well, you see a little bit more abstraction, but you also see abstraction because okay, so so there's some different elements to making work, right? So the thing is, is what you, when you see a whole bunch of faces all day, every day, you're not going to make portraits. Mm, right. I see what you're saying, yeah. So the next level is some level of abstraction because everything begins to kind of blend together after a while. Right. The other thing, too, is you have to consider the idea of minimalism. I then understood why they had minimalism, and this is kind of what I was writing the paper about, why they had minimalism in the North. In, because all you see is straight lines. You, you're on a train. Mm. You're in a building. You're on the street. You're, you're looking for that spiritual space that minimalism gives you in your reaction to the work because you're needing peace. You need quiet. You need solace. Mm. Because everything else around you is busy, 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 busy. Moving, always busy. moving, yeah. So here in the South, the difference is, is that we have open space. They were teasing me. They were like, man, you guys down in Georgia, y'all don't obey the COVID laws. You know? <laughs> I said, but you have to understand, we don't live next to each other. Yeah. Yeah, you got so we don't to go really outside have, and so we don't have the air. same idea yeah. about you know being six feet away because we're generally six feet away all the time anyway. <laughs> yeah, because you sit on I sit on my porch, you sit on your porch, exactly, and you know we still talking like right. like it's nothing. Like and that's a, and that's a regular thing for us. Like especially when you talk about having space, uh, you know, you have like a million people in like two square blocks. Right, like it's, it's it is no space. Like there's you know, no space. Like yeah, it has to be enforced because there's nowhere right. for you to go. It's physically, in terms of just physics, there's nowhere for you uh, to go. Dude, I'm gonna tell you, there was times when I was on the train, where it was inappropriate how close I was to people. Because you're all trying to get to the same place. Yeah, literally, people and people would see you squeeze on the train and would try to squeeze themselves on that train. <laughs> They see that people are like basically busting out of the train and they still try to squeeze themselves in there. Yeah. I mean, but that's that is the mode, right? That's the frame of mind that you in. That the frame of mind is kind of like keep it you moving. have to keep moving. I can't not get on this train. So whatever level of discomfort I have to have, I have to have it because I have to do this next thing. Like right. sort of like the the transit, speaking of, you know what I'm saying, you show the transit of it doesn't matter. Like it's only the destination that people think about, like a lot of times. Well, and then, you know, that had some impact of, of the idea of in, in transit. But also I was really thinking about, and this is where it started. It started, I, I made a list in grad school. I, it was my summer um, in between 
um, semesters that was so I began really thinking about like what did I really like what would my work be about and I'm, and I'm gonna say this because I think sometimes it needs to be said oftentimes when we think about making work we often consider the idea that we have to pull from some idea of tragedy mm, we have to pull yeah. from some idea of bad places in our life right um, and to accentuate those and I began considering the idea that I don't want to do that. I don't want to talk about, you know, and, and, and honestly, I couldn't. You know, when I hear rap songs, they're always talking about like how poor they were or, you know, like Dave Chappelle said, you know, talks about like, you know, how his friends was talking about like, it was bad in the PJs, yo. He was like, yeah. He said, but I don't know. I didn't grow up in those neighborhoods. Right. And I didn't grow up in those neighborhoods. I grew up in upper middle class. My, they teased me and said my family was at the Cosby's, mm -hmm. you know? So I didn't have those quote unquote poor stories to talk about. And that's not, I'm not talking bad about anyone who, who has those. I'm just saying that like, because I didn't have that being black, I often thought that that's what I had to pull from. Right. But then I began considering the fact that like what my family did, what they accomplished. My father went, moved from Alabama to um, Ohio. My mother moved from Alabama from Ohio. Interestingly enough is my parents lived 20 minutes away and met in Columbus, Ohio. Mm. Um, that sounds like me and my way. Yeah. The it, same thing. Yeah, we went to rival high schools and we didn't meet till we went to college. Right. And they, I mean, so they met in Ohio and I was born in Columbus, Ohio. And then we moved to Dayton, and we moved to Cincinnati, and then we moved back to the South. And then uh, one of my friends began talking to me about, have you heard of this idea of the Great Migration? And we began discussing that. And every summer we would travel. Every summer we would go to, like, um, we would go to California. We would go to D.C. We would go to, my, my grandparents lived in Alabama. We would go, so we would travel my father was in a fraternity so we went to his fraternity conventions every year so no matter where they were that's where we were so we went to a lot of major cities um and it was really great but that travel was the place i felt like was my some of my favorite times mm -hmm. you know especially the alpha conventions they were really great i made a lot of great friends there People who I still are friends with today, um, we were the alpha kids, you know. <laughs> the alpha kids. <laughs> but I mean, we would go to these conventions, and they would have like video games there, and we would go to yeah. amusement parks and, yeah. and stuff like that. And it was, um, it was really fun. But I also got to travel. Um, my parents took us on a trip to California from Ohio, where we drove um, the four days from. Dayton, Ohio to California, and then we drove back. We took a train there to California and took a train back. We took a plane there and then back. And I really found it, you know, as an adult now, I go, wow, that was probably really expensive. And then being black, I'm thinking, what kind of things did they go through to make those kind of travels? Right, yeah. Yeah, right? especially at the time, yeah. Right. So, so, be thinking about all that is where I begin to think about this idea of in transit, this idea of African-Americans from the 1920s and 1970s moving from the South to North um, in order in hopes of new opportunities mm -hmm. of hope. Right. And then I began reading a book called the warmth of other sons. Um, love and, that book. Huh? I love that book. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, so, and she's talking about this idea of how, even regionally how people move, like people from Chicago, from Mississippi and Arkansas, people from Ohio or from Alabama um, and Tennessee and people from New York or from South Carolina and North Carolina. Mm -hmm. um, but then th there's so many stories in that. But now all these people are starting to move back. Right. And then you start questioning yourself, like, why are they moving back? What are they moving back for? Um, it was Maya Angelou that said she believed that the reason why people were going like African-Americans kind of went crazy when they were in the North 
is because they lost the land. They lost the dirt. Right. And that's why I began to put that red clay in the work. It became even more prominent then because I wanted to remind us about not the clay as far as us being farmers, that we have to always be farmers, but this kind of bridge that is created because, you know, the same red clay that's here, if you think about the Bit Pangea, is also in Ghana mm. and Uganda mm-hmm. in West Coast Africa. So <laughs> so that bridge, I created, I believe, like this magical bridge that was happening between... Um, Georgia and Africa and we as African people being these kind of nomadic people not not because we want to be but because we needed to be in order to uh, live um, all that those ideas of being in transit they were always moving so uh, yeah you got a in the description of it it has a line that says you're leaving familiar for something better yes like is that whole idea like do you think that was that was what two questions you think that's what your parents were doing and do you think that's what people that are coming back are doing i think both i think that like i think my parents were doing it because you know my parents probably like your parents were in the midst of the civil war a civil or not civil war (laughs) so right yeah almost seems like the civil war now (laughs) reliving it yeah the uh, civil rights. Mm-hmm. You know, my mother tells me stories about how my uncles were actually part of some of these marches and how they tried to, people had threatened the churches within their community and they would sit outside with rifles waiting on people to come. Mm. You know, um, my father talks about marching with Martin Luther King. You know, so... I think to some degree they were moving for these opportunities. My father worked for Internal Revenue Service. He was like one out of one out of six people, African-Americans, that were hired by the Internal Revenue Service in the 60s. Mm. So I think about now, you know, you don't understand this stuff as a child, right? Yeah, yeah. So There's no way for you to I'm put it in context. Yeah. I think about like all the things that my parents went through you know, just to to be a federal agent in 1960? That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. You know, to my mom working at, at Ohio Bell as a, you know, that's when you had to, like, take one cord and put it in the wall. <laughs> you know, my mom, you know. Like those old TV the, shows. You're right, like those old TV shows, you know. You plug it in out one place and plug it in another place. Yeah. Had to know where the plugs were. Yeah, say, please hold. Yeah. yeah, please hold. You know, that's it's crazy. But to be mobile in those societies, they couldn't have accomplished that in the South. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And so do you think that the coming back is a good thing? I think coming back just shows that there's really no difference. Mm. I I just believe that what's happened in the South since then is the South has realized to some degree, not completely, but to some degree, that it's necessary for all of us to live. Right? I think that African Americans begin making a hold on the cities, especially like Atlanta, um, with black mayors and welcoming black industry. And because of that, black people begin to move back. I think because of people like, you know, Maynard Jackson, mm-hmm. I think that's part of the reason why black people are here. Yeah. He's the one that brought music to Atlanta. I think that was a bit part. I think the um, international airport is a bit part. Right. I think all of these things contributed in bringing black people back, back to the South. Yeah. Um, and also, I think that a lot of them remember, a lot of them were sending their kids back to the South in the summer anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, a lot of those kids are the ones that are coming back. I agree. Yeah. And they're coming back because they remember open land. Yeah. They remember, you know, and like we were just saying about living in New York, if you're spending a, a $250,000 on a two-bedroom apartment in a a three-story walk-up, a three-story walk-up is a 
the term used for like this uh, stairs, this three stories of stairs. Okay. Yeah. So they would say a two level walk up or a three level walk up, and you got a, a, a two bedroom apartment and it's costing two hundred fifty thousand, no elevator, versus moving to the south, take a hundred and fifty thousand dollars, buy yourself a three bedroom two bath house, with three quarters of an acre. Yeah. And you still got a hundred thousand left over in your pocket, you could almost retire. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're finding. You're finding like a lot of these people who like worked on um, drove buses in New York or were police officers in New York, moved down here, collect their pension. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, you That's why people were moving to Florida, right? No taxes, you know what right. I'm saying? No state tax, you know what I'm saying? And getting land and retiring, weather. Right. You know what I'm saying? All that, all that stuff plays a part in it. But I think it's also a nostalgia piece, too. Like when they saw Big Mama down here, right? They remember that feeling, and uh, they're kind of still chasing it. You know what I'm saying? Right. And I remember it. Like I remember coming down to Birmingham. My parents lived in a in a small town in Birmingham, and I mean the place was so small that like it wasn't until 17 that there was a sign outside the community that or that told you uh, two miles till. You know. <laughs> um, and it wasn't until I was like in my 20s that I realized that the community was divided up between blacks and whites. Mm. And we had always been on the black side for so long. I didn't even realize that, that it there had was a white, whole side. white side to it. Right? <laughs> yeah. That's, that's hilarious how segregation works, isn't it? It is. It is. <laughs> and But I remember like the really fancy thing or the thing to do because let me tell you something. It was this community was so boring. It was so boring that we would wait until like 8.30 to walk the whole community because it would just be one long walk. And we would do that at 8.30 because there's nothing else to do. (laughs) Other than that, you just sit on the porch and talk to each other all day. Yeah, yeah. You know? I remember one time we, um, one time we walked at 4 o'clock. And then it wasn't as fun at eight o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> and still to this day, the smell of burning trash makes me feel like I'm at home because <laughs> I didn't understand what that smell was for years. I was like, wow, that's such a wonderful smell. Then one day I, I smelled it here and someone said, I said, wow, that's a wonderful smell. They said, well, that's trash. I'm like, oh, so all my childhood I was thinking that this was some amazing smell that was happening and they were just burning trash. <laughs> so it's that nostalgia, right? It's yeah. that that remembrance of home, yeah, right. And, and I think that through my work, I think that's the the over probably one of the under themes of my work is this idea of this constant quest that we all have for a home, yeah. This is Eddie Filer. I'm a portrait artist, and you are listening to Studio Noise. Thank you very much. Yeah, I can see that. Because I can see how um, it's about, you call it in transit. And so when I look at it, you're also seeing a lot of the um, things that are collected along the way that are put together to form like your memory of a thing, like right. your feeling, impression of uh, what it meant to be with your family is for you about the trip that you took. Right. Right. The different places that you stopped, the experience that you had along the way, like stopping. You know, I remember taking trips with my dad and he would give me peppermints. Right. Like, out of the thing. And so now I keep peppermints in my thing. Right. Just off impulse, because that's just I, I see it as the function of it. You know what I'm saying? And so uh, and a lot of times I think. Your work is is being reflective of that, too, because you have all these different pieces. You're sewing them together. You're putting them together, the found objects, the the Dutch wax um, cloth, mm. like all the different things, the clay. Like all of it is being combined to create a new thing. Right. You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah. And I, I think that's what's really amazing when you find artists like Thornton Dahl, mm, uh, Lonnie yeah, Holly, yeah, yeah. who are able to 
take one thing and make it into something else. Yeah. And I think that that's another thing that black people have always been really good at. You know, you could take a Coke can and turn it into something. I mean, or how we take jars and turn them into drinking glasses. Yeah. You know, and sure, that's a sign of like, not just ingenuity, but it's a sign of some type of poverty to some degree. But it's also a sign of using what you have. Right. You know, like not taking a, not needing to take up more space, but just utilizing the space that you have. Mm -hmm. And with my work, I try to kind of embody that. Like I don't really waste anything. I mean, you can tell that by just walking around my studio. There's tons of stuff that you would think to throw away. Mm. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, I can use that. I can use that again later. (laughs) Why? Yeah. Why you got to throw it away? I mean, why throw it away? I mean, I may put it in something later. You know, I, I have this thing about gloves. Like, I really like seeing gloves in my work um, because I think that it shows the literally hand in the work. Mm. But I also think it shows the sense of workmanship and things that are left behind. You know, um, textiles, this this idea of this Dutch wax cloth. What I really like about the Dutch wax cloth is the fact that it shows, first of all, it's a cloth that's, made in Holland that was supposed to be given to the Malaysians and they rejected it. Then they gave it to the Africans. The Africans took it and owned it and began to use it to incorporate into their culture where like if you're having a funeral, the immediate family wears black, but the next level of family wears red, but they're wearing red and black. So it's the the same patterns, Mm. right? Yeah. So they begin to take it into their culture, and it means different things. And each one of these fabrics have a name. Um, But then when you bring it to America, it deals with quilting, right? Right. This idea of quilting, this idea of taking things that are thrown away, like old jeans and our old blankets or torn up blankets that we can't use anymore, but we can put it into this quilt. And I think that that... Our culture is a is very reflective of just using what you have, um, and to me, I think my work is a little bit of recycling. Like, in, for my pouches, um, they're based off of the Gri Gri bags, the uh, the things that African Americans would carry with them from the south to the north that would have like little magical items in them, or they considered to be magic, right? Mm-hmm. They they would be like amulets, or put a rabbit's foot in there, or maybe. Uh, a ring that they thought was was really lucky or maybe it was a ring of their grandmothers and they were carrying it with them because it brought good luck. And I think that, um, so that's why I begin to add these pouches to my pieces because I want it, I want my, my work to be amulets. I want it to be power items. I want it, just like in the Congo when they put nails into something. Um, the Nikizi pieces, I, I really like the Nikizi pieces a lot and I, and I wanted that same type of effect for my work. I want it to be powerful, not just in a sense of like you look at it as powerful, but that if it's in your space, it has a power to it. And mm. you feel that. And it's that good energy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And there's something physical about it, too. Right. Right. It's, it's, it's um, the same thing when you talk about having amulets. Right. I think it's the physical object is right. also what what channels the energy exactly. and power through different spaces. So especially if you believe that and you're putting it into your work, that work is going forth carrying the same energy right. to all these other places that is going to be exhibited at. Right. Yeah. I like that. I like that. So when did you, when you started with the scrap fabrics, tell me about how that started. So I started um, first day of grad school. I started these fabric these uh canvas paintings and i remember telling my mentor um miguel luciano i said to him well i'm gonna take these paintings and then i'm gonna take them and then i'm gonna paint on them and then i'm gonna um put them in these shapes hang them on the wall in different shapes and he wasn't really sure what i meant or he looked like he wasn't really sure what i meant (laughs) but then he looked at the painting and said how about this why don't we start with just making a great abstract painting? I was like, hmm. Right. Take take all the complication out of it. Just start from the very beginning. Right. Yeah. 
start from the very beginning. <laughs> very good place to start. So then I begin thinking that way. And then by Open Studios, when I showed him what I was doing, he was like, oh, I get it. I get it. I get it. So in order for me to, I felt like the abstraction was the American aspect of us. But this series was called Going Home. And it was right after the idea, right after the, the murder of Michael Brown. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm in grad school and I'm thinking, what is my part in this? I have a son. Very easily could have been a Michael Brown. Right. What is my part in this? And I said, but where do black people go? Where is their safety? Where is the place of safety for us? But I don't like, you know, I don't like dwelling in the negative aspects of America because there's enough of those. And there's enough people talking about how negative it is here without solutions. Mm. So I figured I would create these, these portals where when they're hanging, if you said this word, or if you were initiated into this space, then you could transport yourself into a space that would be safe. Mm. Um, so the abstract painting, I felt like it needed another element to it. And that was what I can thought at the time was African cloth. So I sold the African cloth to the canvas painting. And then I hung it and I draped it and it was really nice. You know, it felt like me. I did that for the rest of the year. Um, and then the following year, that summer, I began to think about um, the fabric in a different way. I began to ask myself, and you know, another friend comes up and says, man, you're really, the fabric looks really good, but it seems like you care for the fabric more than you care about the, the painting. Hmm. Says, what if you just paint on that? Hmm. So you were leaving the fabric untouched. You were just basically collaging it. I felt like in. I was including it, but maybe I wasn't including it enough. Hmm. So then I separated it. And I'm going to tell you, that first that first time painting on it was a challenge. Yeah? Just in terms of you thinking about painting on it? or Yes, because the thing is, like, this fabric is really pretty. <laughs> right? And then right. you're thinking to yourself, so I'm going to paint on top of that? And to me, it was kind of a boldness, right? This kind of boldness to think that I could paint on top of that. Mm. To me, it was almost thinking to myself, like, I'm going to paint on top of a Picasso. Like, mm. why would I do that? Right. But then I did it. And once I did it, um, I well, I turned the fabric around so that it wouldn't be, so to add a more sculptural element to it. And that was... Um, suggestions by um, Camila Rashid. She was my studio professor. Um, and she was like, hey, why don't you think about turning around? I mean, that way it's not, everyone does it on the other side, hmm. the pretty side. Yeah. Why don't you turn around? So I turned it around and I began to paint on the back side. And that became my thing, is to paint on it that way. Because it does have more sculptural um, aspect to it, but also as I've been doing it, the one thing I like about it is that the mistakes that I make in sewing actually begin to work to my benefit. Hmm. The loose threads, the, um, the weird shapes I get because I sometimes get this fabric from um, uh, people who make dresses. And because I get these odd shapes, sewing it together sometimes isn't always even. Right. But that actually begins to work to my benefit. Pieces of hanging fabric. They just add additional marks. So, I mean, I think that that also plays in this idea of 
of home. Mm. It plays in these ideas of remembrance. Right. And they become almost like halos to the work. Mm. I like that. I like that. Because if you, it does also bring in kind of the history of the cloth into it. Right. Like this was cut off from a dress pattern or something that, you know what I'm saying? The yeah, shard, the I, discards from it. So you bring in that kind of that, those shapes make their way into it like a little bit. I like that. And that's where I also think that like where it plays in us. Like here you have this fabric that was, that's made in Holland that becomes African. It's this thing in between. Right. Because you could no longer say that it's, I mean, as much as it's made in Holland, it's not a Dutch fabric anymore. Right. No one in America or Africa would ever say that's a Dutch fabric. Only people that know it as that would say that. Right. Um, and we, as a people that have been um, brought here to America and have existed here for over 400 years, um, only we know that I don't know. I think we're this thing in between, too. Mm. I mean, I don't know any African stories. I can't tell you about any days I was on the Sahara and able to look and out into the sunset. I don't know any. I don't have any of those. I don't I don't know any African fables. Right. You know, I took Af African-American studies was my minor. You know, but I had to pursue that. Yeah. It yeah. wasn't something that was poured into me yeah everything you know is kind of a secondhand it's secondhand like experience of it but what i do know is living here in america right but then i question i mean with the current crisis or the current situations that we're dealing with are we really american mm. i mean we're born here we live here grandparents great-grandparents so we're indigenous to the land but are we American? Mm. So I ask this question, and when I'm asking this question, I then also use the cloth to also ask this question. And I think the cloth kind of discusses it a lot better than I can. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about the role that gesture plays. Like that what? gesture. Gesture? Yeah. Because when I look at your work, I do see a lot of that. Like a lot of, even the, I, I consider the way you're putting the cloth together as a, as a gesture itself. Right. Because it's not a pattern played out, laid out. Like you are like moving stuff around, taking scraps. So like you playing with the shapes. I think the word gesture comes to mind when I look at your work. Mm, thank you. Um, I always like work that you can see the hand in it. Mm-hmm. I don't like, well, I can't say I don't like it. I am drawn more to work where I can actually feel like I saw that person touching that. Like when you look at Basquiat's work, you almost feel like he just walked away from it. Like he just made this mark and he walked away. Jackson Pollock, I feel like the same thing. Some parts of Rothko, I feel the same. So there's certain parts where I feel like I can see the human in the work. Mm -hmm. So I try to do the same thing. I try to make sure that there's a, a human element in the work, which I think separates me from this idea of minimalism, right? Because I think that, um, I don't know, I think that's the beauty of what makes the work. I think that, like, sometimes when we talk about the idea of black abstraction, right, we talk about the fact that you're not actually seeing the physical body in the work because it figured, um, that's figurative, right? Um, and that's the question right now with all the work that's selling is a lot of it is figurative work. Yeah. Representational. But I would say that my work is just as representational as a figure because you can actually see my marks in the work. So you see me. So when we talk about gesture, 
and we talk about movement and creating that level of movement, I think that's accomplished because of the physical body in the work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like gesture. I like seeing that. I like seeing the movement. I like work that makes me feel like, like when you look at a Rothko and you like begin to levitate because all you see is the plane that he's created. Mm-hmm. Um, where you almost feel like you're standing on the shore and like the bottom part of the painting feels like the water and then like the uh, the center part begins to feel like uh, what's far away and then the top part begins to feel like the sky and it's all coming together for a sunset or for a sunrise. I, I think that's really powerful. When I look at my work, that's what I'm trying to accomplish. I'm trying to accomplish this idea that you get completely lost in it and that you, that the place that you have to find peace is within the busyness rather than trying to create a safe space or a quiet space in the work. I want you to find that safe space. I want you to find that soft place within the busyness. I like that. And I think it's also, it's kind of a very complicated structure to it that I think that you have to you're trying to understand why you standing in front of it and looking at it, like right. especially like some of the, the your larger pieces that were that I saw at um, Aviation Center. Like they feel like you're on a goal or quest to understand it. Right. You know, what are you looking at? You know what I'm saying? And how it all like fits together. So I, I love it when work can can do that and make you make you think and activate different parts and make you want to spend time with it. Right. You know, and I think uh and not to say that the figurative work doesn't do that, but there there is a, a, a easier understanding of what you're looking at. I think that that has something to do with it. Yeah, I mean we know what we know what a nose look like. Yeah, and you know what a person sitting on a chair, like right. on a we know on what a that pattern like. background, like you like you it's 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 almost expected at this point. Like just you, the way we're inundated with those certain kind of images. And I, you know you also go to museums a lot. You see people take pictures of those things and they walk away. Yeah. Yeah. They take a picture and they walk away. Yeah. And my question is, how often are you going to look at that picture? After you leave. How often will you ever see that picture again? Right. When you go through your phone, how many do you ever go back through your high museum folder and just flip through it and look at those images again? Yeah. Because you're not going to get the same experience. You're not going to get the same experience. Not only that, you're not even going to look at them again. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I know I went to the I went to the high to saw the Driscoll exhibit before it came down. And I was struck by not just the size of some of the pieces, but the brightness of the colors. Right. And even in the ways that I've seen it reproduced, it doesn't do it justice. Like, there's no way to, like to take away the experience of standing in front of a David Driscoll and looking at all the different layers and the colors and, and how everything's working together. And he has a lot of gesture in his work too. The gesture and the, you know, the layers, you know, like Man. even if no photograph could, no, no photograph I've ever seen of some of those pieces. And I'm familiar, familiar with it, but it still didn't do it any justice. If you ever get the chance to see, I remember seeing Aaron Douglas's, um, and this is where it really struck me. Aaron Douglas's um, pieces that he made for WPA. Mm. And I remember seeing them in books. Large in the books. But I saw them in person at the Schoensburg. And they're like 18 by 24. Mm. They're not big. And you're thinking this whole time. When you're reading this book, these things have to be large. Right. All the detail that he's worked in this, these have to be huge pieces, like 10 by 10 feet by 10 feet. But no. Same thing with persistence of memory. 
when when right. the Dolly exhibit was here and you come and see it and it's literally like right <laughs> like 18 by something it's not even 18 by but 24. then when you it's saw smaller. the large pieces you were like oh my yeah God. exactly yeah yeah like you turn that corner it's that piece with the man on the horse i'm gonna add the, add the title to it later but it's the man on the horse like like yo this is wild but it's, everybody looks at persistence of memory because they used to seeing the imagery so in much book. in some in so many places and so many posters um it's just a different experience of work so like to take your photograph is great for memory right they're trying to recapture that feeling later on after but after like you said after you sat there with it for a little while right like then you have something to, to go back and reference like you you're not going to get it just by taking pictures i'm gonna tell you when I um, it was it was the end of my first semester of my second year, which I was I was getting ready to go into my thesis semester, and we had open studios, and I had some of the work in there, and I had some hanging in a corner, I had painted the studio like it's an installation, and then I had another piece on another wall. And I just was not feeling it. Mm. People were coming in and looking at the studio and they were like, oh, okay, what do you think? And I'm like, I said, well, you know, I would explain the work or whatever, but in my mind, I'm thinking this sucks. <laughs> this is horrible. And I couldn't figure out why it was horrible yet. And then I went to, I went to the Whitney. I came in after came in after open studios, but I couldn't take it down yet because I started to have my mentor look at it and all that kind of stuff. So then I go to the Whitney. I had the afternoon, and I go up to the third floor where they generally had their permanent collection. And I turn the corner right, turn left, and there's a Clifford Stills, ten foot by ten foot on the wall. Mm. And when I saw that, it answered all my questions. How? I was trying to figure out why my work didn't work in that space with the painted walls and the installation look and work up in the corner. And there was a 10 foot painting on white walls. It was just the painting. Mm. There was no gimmicks. It was no like me trying to make it work. It was not me trying to fit it into a space. It was just the work. And when I saw that, I went back to my studio upset because I now knew what it is I needed. And that was just white walls. Mm. Some people can put their stuff in the corner. My work isn't made for that. Some people can put their stuff on the floor. Maybe someday I'll get to that. But what I figured out about the work that I was making there is that what I needed was the white walls to separate. So you so you have to find the piece in the work. Mm. So you have to come to it. No distractions. No distractions. Right. And that Clifford Stills taught me that. And that was an amazing painting. I mean, Clifford Stills is a, he's a monarch, man. I mean, right. this dude is beyond understanding i mean even for someone like yourself who's a printmaker i'm sure you understand the way he worked with line yeah i mean in his abstraction the way that he created almost landscapes with these paintings and when you find out he's from denver it makes perfect sense (laughs) right right you begin to go oh no well no wonder you know really great work yeah, that's awesome, man. So we're, we're approaching the end, but I do want to bring up um, the latest ex- exhibition that you've been in. Uh, well, there's two of them. The Four Elements, which is at Marietta Car Museum. It's about to come down. Though. Yeah, it comes down Sunday. And the South Got Something to Say, um, curated by Karen Comolo, now at the Hammond House. Hammond House. Director. Shout out to Karen. Got to bring her on the Karen. podcast. Um Tell me about that show a little bit and what you think. Well, that show is interesting because it's not like in four walls, right? It's not yeah. inside of a building. 
it's out in the world. Yeah. And uh, for those that don't know, the South got something to say. You can look it up. And it was um, they have these billboards, electronic billboards all over the city. And it was part of uh, dashboard. Know, dashboard. Yeah. That, and so they all worked together to show like these group of artists that Karen selected uh, and they put their work up on these big led screens like all over the city yes and each and each artist has their own neighborhood so like i think for amu is midtown um i think i'm sure and i'm on peachtree street me and alfred conte on peachtree street so you have them in different places throughout the city um so it's really interesting because especially dealing with covid like it's a it's an exhibition that you can go to Without having to go indoors, right? Without without having to get out your car at all, you, like, you can see it like, and just experience it as you drive by. Right. As a matter of fact, when I went to go see my piece and Alfred's piece, I pulled over on the side of the road, and I was just able to look up and see the work. Mm. So it's really interesting that um, what technology is giving us when it comes to art. Yeah, and I think because a lot of people were kind of forced into that space of, uh, you know, we can't not have art. Like right. during COVID, like what are we gonna do? So it was a lot of the online exhibitions, a lot of uh, 3D showrooms, right. like online, and a lot of this, like kind of uh, finding a way to broadcast the art. And right. I, I consider it broadcasting because it's not exactly showing like your original work. I I see it as two completely separate things. Like it's like it's seeing your work in person is one experience. And right. I think that is a separate experience. Right. And so I wanted, wanted to ask you, like, how did you look at it? Or how, or what do you think it did to your work in the presentation of it? If anything. Um, I really thought it was fascinating because, but I'm the only abstractionist. That's true. That's true. So to see my work was completely different than seeing everyone else's work. Because everyone else has a painting that's a picture and it's on a billboard, whereas mine is an abstraction and it almost looks like, I don't know, like some kind of weird kind of graffiti, you mm, know? Yeah. Um, so what we did was it was actually a painting that I did uh, based off a series I called Flat, uh, that's called Flat Splat, just like that. Um, it's actually number two of that series. And um, I had them cut the painting in half and put it side by side. And then they they wrapped the whole thing around the billboard. So it goes from the front all the way to the side. Um, and that's kind of funky. It, because it's really different than the fact that you have still pictures of portraiture on these buildings. But here you have something that goes completely around and consumes the whole space. And I thought it was, I was really humbled that I was asked to participate, but even more humbled by the way that it um, exhibited in the on the billboard. Yeah. To me, it was really exciting. It kind of reminded me of like the um, Prada store in Martha, mm, Texas. Yeah. Because it kind of stands alone in a way, and the light from it, though, is so bright. I mean, I got really, really excited when I saw it because I was like, "Oh my god, this thing is fantastic!" Like, because it's just so bright. Right. That's good. That's good because you know it. I'm and I'm wondering if you'll keep using it, like if it's another way that you'll try to do. The same thing, like in your own way, like more purposefully that goes along with what you do. Does that make sense? <laughs> when I when I saw it, I said my brain started cooking. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, and, you know, you need to be shook LED. up a little bit. Yeah. You need to be shook up a little bit. Wow. Get you thinking about some other stuff. Yeah. I mean, but that's the great thing about being an artist, though, is like yeah. we like i've I've been asked before like what what now what's next and for a long time i was really i wasn't really sure what what was next but then i began to understand that my practice kind of evolves 
right? Like the same way I may pick up a string on the side of the road or I used to pick up tires off the side of the expressway to make work. I'm not really sure what I'm going to make next, but I am sure that I'm going to continue to make. Right. Um, but each work builds off of the last work. Right. So like the work that is that you saw at Aviation Center when you go to Marion Museum and you see those um, those pieces on the wall that are just the pouches by themselves, the pouches have now left right. the, the physical aspect of the textile work. Now they become their own thing. So what does that mean? Now I begin asking questions. Okay, what does this mean for it to be separated from that? And how do I make it my own? How do I continue to make it my own? So, though, I mean, every new work creates new questions. And then you make work from those questions. Well, I make work from those questions. Absolutely, man. I love it, man. Tell them where they can find you. Um, I'm on Instagram. Jamel Wright Sr. J-A-M-E-L-E-W-R-I-G-H-T-S-R. Um, you can find me with September Gray on her website. You can find me at Marion Museum um, and on Peachtree Street. Um, I'm not literally standing on Peachtree Street, yeah, but for the South got something to say, my work is on Peachtree Street. That's what's up, man. Thank you, man. I appreciate you coming on the show, man. Oh, I appreciate you asking me. I've been I've been hoping for this. <laughs> Sitting by the phone, waiting on a call from Jamal. <laughs> and what's great about you and I is I wonder how you're going to say this because generally I get called Jamal. <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to be a nice tongue twister for you to say, this is Jamal introducing Jamal. This is Jamel. I, I can Jamal. figure it out, man. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I get you, yo. Thanks for coming on the show, man. All right, man. You take care. that's it another episode of studio noise in the bag big thank you to jamel wright senior for letting me in the studio being so welcoming showing me some art next week we'll be back for more we got janelle logan curator extraordinaire <laughs> coming on the show and to all my artists out there make resting part of your practice take some time away to charge up and then come back with the noise the noise yes we'll see y'all next week peace thank you for listening to the studio noise podcast subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts please take a second to rate us and write a review to make sure everybody knows about the noise follow us on instagram at studio noise podcast 